I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. The Lord spoke to me a couple of months ago when we were in the middle of another series. And um, actually it was about um, uh, maybe November, October, end of October, maybe November. And the Lord spoke to me about, uh, uh, I say spoke to me, I don't mean I heard words, but I had a witness in my heart that um, that in the... Um, uh, early part of this year, 2012, to teach on our authority in Christ. And um, that's, that's not a real common thing for me. I, I don't usually work that far out. Um, you know, I'll get things on my heart. I'll get certain topics on my heart, and the Lord will, uh, will direct me. And, and, but, but you know as well as I do that when we start a series, I never know how long it's going to go. Um, I don't, I don't, you, you probably don't know this part, but I don't have it planned out that, okay, I'm going to teach this one week and then I'll go to this and I'll go to the other. I may have a couple of thoughts or a couple of points in mind, but um, one of the things that I, that I got from Brother Hagan, even though we stand in, in different offices, he was a prophet, and, uh, and I'm certainly not. Um, one of the things that I got from him was to minister out of inspiration. It, it amazes me how people go and they, they make these outlines and some pastors make outlines for the year of what they're going to teach. Folks, I don't know what I'm going to teach today. <laughs> I know where I'm going to start, but I don't know where I'm going to go. And, uh, and so it was really kind of unusual that, uh, that the Lord would put it on my heart that far in advance. But I, looking at the point we are now, I can see why. Because there's things that we've said that have built uh, up to this point and then there are things that, um, that have happened since then, since the time that he spoke to us, Terry Myers being here, and, and some of the things that he spoke on concerning spiritual authority, and then some of the, the, uh, the, uh, the DVD series that I got from him, or ordered from his ministry, he was sold out uh, before I got a hold of it. But, uh, um, but some of the things that, that I started listening to, that stirred me up a lot. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm really excited to start a new series this morning titled Our Authority in Christ. And um, uh, it's, how do I say this? I believe, just from the things that are witnessed in my heart, just from the things that I've known up to this point, I believe that 2012 is going to be a year for authority. Yeah. Now, I've heard people talk about 2012 in a lot of other ways, but as far as I'm concerned, 2012 is a year for authority. So let's start. You ready? Yeah. Genesis chapter 1. Bible talks about, that's a good place to start, isn't it? <laughs> Bible talks about how that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth in, um, uh, in uh, six days, seventh day he rested. Uh, there's two accounts. Anytime the Bible, well, remember that the Bible says in the mouth of two or three uh, witnesses, let every word be established. For that reason, God starts off the creation account with two accounts. He's giving two witnesses. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. This is God telling Moses first person dictating to him. Here's how it was. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy in the world about uh, evolutionary theory and, and creationism, and, and, and it's a big deal in schools. You know, you've got so-called scientists or people that purport, purport to be scientists that say, you know, creationism shouldn't be taught in schools as a, as a scientific theory. Uh, evolution is the only scientific theory that should be proposed and, and so forth. Folks, I want you to understand, one of the major foundational Definitions of science is something that can be repeated. Repeat evolution for me, please. <laughs> show me any laboratory, show me any example, show me anything whatsoever that they can duplicate what they claim to be evolutionary science. You can't do it. 
it, it does not meet the definition of science by definition itself. On the other hand, you've got what we would accept in any courtroom as the highest form of witness. First person testimony. God telling Moses, here's how I did it. Now you may not know this, but the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote with the exception of the last little bit of Deuteronomy where uh, it says that Moses died and God buried him up in the mountain. Moses didn't write that. Joshua added that onto the other things that Moses wrote. Uh, that would have been kind of tough for Moses to be telling us about that after the fact. But uh, nevertheless, the first five books of the Bible are different from any other writings in history. There is a mathematical code. Some of the greatest scientists in the world, Einstein, for example, recognized that the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, is a cipher, a mathematical equation. For that reason, you can graph it, you can grid it, you can do all kinds of things with it, and it gives you information that no other writing on the face of the earth does. Now, you may not know about these things because they're not talked about to, very, to a great degree. But there, there is in the, um, uh, well, I don't want to get into it. It's, it's called the Bible Code, and I don't really, it's fascinating, but it's, it, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. My, my point is very simply this. Anybody that's honest... Any scholar that's honest will tell you there is a difference to the original text of the first five books of the Bible than anything else that's ever been written in the world. Now, what's the significance of that? It's God dictating to Moses letter by letter, Hebrew letter by Hebrew letter, here's what I did. So he gives two accounts, because in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Both witnesses are God. Who else was there? That's why the Bible is the way it is. Now, I'm not saying that that's proof positive and, and that should erase all doubt. You've got to accept one way or the other or choose whether or not you're going to accept God's witness is the truth. That's always going to be the case with the Bible, folks. You're always going to be left with a decision. Is it true or is it not true? And God didn't make that decision for you. He says, here's the truth. You decide. Fair and balanced reporting. He tells you the truth. You decide. But, folks, it's true. So, anyway, back to Genesis 1. God, in his attempt to establish a perfect society, please get this, his attempt to create, uh, to, to, to manufacture, to make, literally, a perfect world, creates everything that there is, and then he tells what his purpose was. Now, now there's so many things you could, so many different directions you could go with Genesis. You could destroy the environmentalist movement from Genesis. God made the world for man. In order to put the world above man, you've got to do away with God. You've got to do away with the idea of, of God making it and why. Which is exactly what the environmentalist movement does. Plants have more rights than man does. Same people who are trying to save the trees are killing the unborn children. So God creates the world. Help me, Lord. 
God creates the world. He makes everything there is. He makes all the grass that, that, that is necessary. He makes all the trees. He makes more air than man could breathe. He creates everything in an abundance, something that has, has regenerated, something that has continued, something that will continue long after this age is over, even through the millennium. People tell you that the resources of the world are, are depleting. People tell you about global warming. It's going to destroy everything. It's not true. And the only way you can come up with that is to discount what the Bible says. Which takes me out you know, automatically. So God made everything. He created it for man to inhabit. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice the apes have already been made and they ain't in the image of God. Let us make man in our own image. God creates man separate from anything and everything else there was. Everything else was created. Everything else was made. And then God says, now I'm going to make man. So the primordial ooze was nowhere in sight. God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, I want you to notice that. There are two different things. Image and likeness are not the same thing. See, we think of image as being something that looks alike. That's not what he's saying. Likeness is look like us. Well, what's image then? A spirit being. You're the only thing that is made in the image of God who is a spirit being and will live eternally. Animals won't. I know it's sad to think that Fluffy won't be in heaven with us. But they're not spirit beings. Don't worry, though. God likes animals. He's got these angels with these five faces and eyes all around their heads. and He must think those things are nice. I don't know. I'm not real sure. Don't sound too cool to me, but... Now, I personally believe that the earth was made as a pattern of heaven. If there are animals here on the earth, there must be animals in heaven, too. Otherwise, where would God get the idea for animals and why? Just a thought. So he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, notice it's not just man, Adam, it's mankind, and let them have dominion. I want you to notice, folks, three key words, image, likeness, dominion. I'm going to make man in my class. He will have the same appearance. If you notice, when God appears to Moses, or Moses says, show me your glory, God says, you can't look on my face and live. Well, God must have a face then. He says, but here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, this crack here, and I'll put my hand over you. Well, God must have a hand then. And then he says, and I'll pass by you and let you look at my back parts. Well, God must have back parts. And if you have back parts, there must be front parts, so you could distinguish parts from parts. Remember the old chicken commercial, parts is parts? Not so. It sounds a lot like man, doesn't it? We see in in, uh, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in hell and he looked over and he recognized Father Abraham. He recognized Lazarus. How would he recognize Lazarus if Lazarus didn't look or have the likeness of something that he was accustomed to on the earth? People ask questions, were we going to know each other in heaven? Will we know each other here? Folks, the physical realm is just a representation of the spirit realm. Your spirit looks 
much like your body looks. Somebody used the example, I think it's a good one, of, uh, of people going into space. You can't walk in space without a space suit. Well, you can't walk on the earth without an earth suit. That's what's called your body. You take the person out of the spacesuit, it looks a lot like the person himself, doesn't it? Because it's meant to fit him. Your body is meant to fit your spirit. So he says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. I want you to notice God's first thought concerning man is for man to be in authority. Let them have dominion. Now he tells what the limits of that authority is. Let them have dominion over the fowl of the air, or I'm sorry, fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So he's saying man has dominion over every other living thing, in other words, every other animal. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Notice the woman is just as much the image of God as, as the man is. Why? Because being made in the image of God has nothing to do with appearance, it has to do with being a spirit being. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. What does the word subdue mean? It means to have authority over. It means to exercise control. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat or food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. I want you to notice that God said it's very good when man has authority. Now in Psalm, one four, uh, one, uh, Psalm 115, let me read a, a, verses, uh, a verse here. Let me turn to it real quick. Psalm 115, I think it's the 16th verse. Let me check that out to see. Yeah, Psalm 115, verse 116. It says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth has He given to the children of men. The word given there is the word delivered. But the earth has He delivered to the children of men. Folks, I want you to understand that God's original intent was that man would have authority on the earth. You were placed on the earth to be the God of this world. At least Adam was. If that's too hard for some people to swallow, they can say, well, okay, we weren't around, but Adam was. Adam was placed on the earth and given dominion. He was literally made the God of this world. But the Bible says that, that Satan is now the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, that Satan is the God of this world and he blinds people's minds to keep them from getting saved, to keep them from receiving the light of the glorious gospel. How did Satan become the God of this world? We can clearly see that Adam was created to be the God of this world. There's no way that Satan could have been here with authority and God say to Adam, subdue the earth. Because if Satan's the God of this world and was already here at that point in time, there's nothing for Adam to subdue. That would have been the cruelest of tricks that God would have played on him. It would have made God a liar. How did this happen? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 tells us the story of Jesus when he was uh, tempted of the devil. 
It starts off in the temptation. We'll start in verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when, he was, when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it may be made bread. And Jesus answering him said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, the, uh, every word of God. What's it saying? It's saying the devil will always tempt you with your body first. He'll always tempt you with your physical needs first. And then the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed, him to, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power. Now that word power in the Greek, the original Greek, is the word authority. There are two main words, uh, actually four words that are used throughout the New Testament, but two of them mostly. One of them means ability. That's what's translated power. And the other word means authority. Now, authority is delegated power. Let me talk to you for just a moment about the difference between power and authority. You know as well as I do that if you, we left here and, and uh, went down, to, headed to lunch or wherever we're going after church, if the street lights were out and if there was a, a policeman standing in the corner or standing in the intersection, I mean, if, he, if the policeman is standing in the intersection directing traffic, he's telling people who can go and who can stop, Right? Now, it doesn't matter how big the policeman is. It doesn't matter how small the policeman is. His physical appearance has nothing to do with it other than if we see that he's wearing the uniform and the badge, we recognize that he has authority. Now, power would be the ability to physically hold back the cars. He can't do that. Even the smallest car could run him over. He doesn't have the power to stop traffic. But he does have the authority. The authority has been delegated to him by the state to carry out the duties of a policeman. Right? The difference between power, ability, and power, authority, is very, very great. God did not give Adam power over the earth. He didn't give him ability over the earth. He gave him dominion, authority. Authority. Here, Satan is saying to Jesus, and as he shows him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, he says to him, all this authority will I give thee, and the glory of them, now notice this phrase, for that, meaning the authority, is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Now, we just saw in Genesis chapter 1 that when God made Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden, he gave him authority over the world. How did Satan get it? Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan is the god of this world. We know that this is true. We know that Satan is controlling things. So many times in, in uh, uh, business sense and in, in insurance policies and things like that, they talk about acts of God. They'll insure you against anything except an act of God. They've started changing that a little bit. Now it's force majeure, where they, the term that they use some uh, instead of acts of God. But what they mean is things outside of our control. And things outside of the realm of, of, of predictability. Well, who's behind those things? If they are acts of God, think about that. If they were acts of God, then when Jesus was crossing over the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and he went to sleep in the back part of the ship and the storm arose, when Jesus got up, the, you know, the disciples, they woke him up. They're bailing water. They're, they're saying, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus, you got to wake up. Can't die while you're asleep. Got to be awake for this. 
They woke him up and he stood up and he, re- he went to the front of the ship and he rebuked the storm. Now, if God's behind the storm, Jesus is operating contrary to the will of God. That makes him a lawbreaker. Hello? If God's the one that causes storms, if God's the one that causes stuff, Jesus, in this case at least, Jesus operated contrary to the will of God. God's not the one behind this stuff, folks. I don't care what preacher tells you what. Oh, this earthquake, this hurricane, this terrible thing. You remember the hurricane that hit New Orleans? You had preachers, bless their darling hearts, stand up saying, this is the judgment of God against a city. No, it's not. God's not judging cities. He will. But that judgment has been suspended while the church is here. That's why it's called the age of grace, not the age of you get what you deserve. Satan's behind these things. Why? Because he's the God of this world. Folks, can you imagine the patience of God putting up with thousands and thousands of years of being blamed for stuff that he didn't do? Maybe the majority, a a big part of it, maybe even the majority, being blamed and accused by his own children. That's not the way it ought to be. So Satan says, this has been delivered unto me. This authority, the authority on the earth has been delivered unto me. How did Satan get it? Folks, that's what the transgression in the Garden of Eden was all about. Eve's thinking, oh, here's something good to eat. What was the temptation? The temptation was, has God said, the devil always comes with a question. Has God said that you can eat of everything except this one? She answered, yeah, that's right. Every tree except this one. In the day that we eat thereof, we shall surely die. That's what God told us. And then the devil comes in with his response. You're not going to die. It's not going to happen to you. You don't have to worry about it. Other people may get hooks on drugs, but it won't happen to you. You can handle it. It may have ill effects for other folks, but not you. You'll be able to handle it. So what does he do? He uses that to try to talk into things that we know better. They knew better. Adam and Eve both, they knew better. So then she looked at it. When she heard, no, you'll be like God, with your eyes wide open, able to discern good and evil. Whoa. Folks, I want you to understand, they were already the gods of this world. With a clear understanding that their job was to to subdue the earth. Now, if there's nothing to control, if there's nothing that, could, that they uh, should exercise control over, why did God tell them to have dominion? See, folks, so many times people think this idea of this, and, and please realize, sin was not on the scene, but the devil was. So many times people have this idea, and, and you see it happening politically. It's happened through the years. You see it happening politically. You see it happening culturally. People come up with this idea that we can create this utopian society. Folks, the utopian creation, the Garden of Eden creation had the presence of sin. Satan was there, and that didn't mess up God's garden at all. Why? Because he gave authority to the individual to exercise discipline and dominion over it to maintain their right standing. People have got this idea, well, if we can just straighten things out financially, if we can just get the rich people to pay more, then the poor people will come up. No, they won't. They'll just bring the rich people down. All you got to do is look at history to find that out. Folks, this is not rocket science. Look at history and see. This is not the first time that it's happened. 
So Satan tells Jesus, this authority has been delivered to me. How did he get it? He got it from man because man delivered it to him. Notice you can give the authority to whoever you want. If Satan could give the authority to Jesus. Now, some people say, oh, no, no, no. Satan was lying to him. Then why did Jesus answer him according to what he said? Why didn't Jesus say, you big liar? But he didn't. Jesus answered and said, uh, Satan goes on in verse 7, If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Why didn't Jesus say, Well, I'm not going to worship you anyway, but you know you don't have that authority. Now, folks, if this was not a bona fide temptation, the Holy Ghost is tricking us. He gives us this information as if it was a genuine, real, bona fide temptation. Jesus was genuinely tempted. Now, it doesn't mean he, he thought about it and, and, you know, almost went for it. I'm not saying that. But he was genuinely tempted with the authority on the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. What did Jesus come for? To regain man's authority. How do we know that? Because when he appears to the disciples after he's raised from the dead, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then first, what's the first thing he says to the disciples? Go ye therefore. He says, I've got all the ability. Now I'm delegating the authority to you. I'll take care of heaven. You take care of the earth. Wasn't that God's original plan? Well, of course. Let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. It goes back to the original plan. So here Satan is tempting Jesus. And again, I'm not saying Jesus was on the edge and decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying it had to be a bona fide, real temptation, something that was legitimate for him to consider if he chose. Or else the Bible's lying to us when it says that he's tempted. See, folks, when you understand that things are either one way or the other, the Bible becomes real easy. I know that's too much for most religious folks, but that's really the way it was supposed to work. One of the things it says about Jesus is they were amazed because he taught them not as the scribes. You know how the scribes were? The scribes said, well, it might be like this. Or it might be like this. Or it might be some other way. Well, we really don't know. That'll set you over, won't it? That's so much of the way the church world looks at Jesus. Looks at God. Well, God might want you to be well, but God might want you to be sick. I don't know. God's too big for me to figure out. Wait a minute. The Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you're healed. The Bible says Jesus, even when he was on the earth, taught his disciples how to pray. And he taught them to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to know what things are supposed to be like on the earth, all you have to look at is in heaven. Any sickness in heaven? Then God doesn't want you sick here. Duh. It should be that simple. And it is that simple. Unless you let religion mix you up. So Satan says, all this authority is given unto me. It's been delivered unto me. And I can deliver it to whoever I want to. How does Satan know that? Because that's how he got it. Adam delivered it to him when he obeyed what Satan said and disobeyed God. That's when the authority on the earth was delivered unto Satan. Now folks, please understand. Let's try to put it in some kind of context that we can understand. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God still owns the place. But he put Adam in charge. He gave Adam a lease. Adam sublet it to Satan. Didn't check with the, with the owner first. He sublet it 
to Satan. And Satan's lease will run out. His lease runs out at the end of the church age. And that's when God begins to exert himself as the rightful owner of the earth. But what about us? Now we live in the day when Satan is the manager, the one with authority on the earth, the God of this world. We're operating under his sublease agreement. And God is a God, he's a just God. God's not going to come in and say, no, this is not what I planned, you're out of here. That day's coming. But instead, God provided a way for you to operate outside the, the legal boundaries, outside of the, the conditions of Satan's sublease agreement. And that's what Jesus came to provide us. Now, I want you to see something else about Jesus. We know this has to be true because Jesus was not bound by Satan's uh, rules and regulations. We know that Satan did not have authority over Jesus in any way whatsoever. We're right here in Luke chapter 4. Let me show you something that the Bible says. I, I read these verses for years, years. And it only occurred to me within the last five or six years what the Bible was really saying. Thank God the Bible is alive. Just about the time you think you've got it because you've got it memorized, then you'll see what it's really saying. It's like, whoa, wow. How'd I miss that all these years? Let me show you something that I missed for years. Here it says in, uh, uh, let's start reading in verse um, 31. Verse 31. This is after he's been in Nazareth and they try to throw him off the brow of the cliff and he walks through the midst of them. And it says, and he came down, left Nazareth, in, in other words, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. How do you read that? I used to read that as they were astonished at his teaching because he had power. See, I put the power on him. I thought they were amazed because they recognized, wow, this guy's got power. That's not what it says. It says his word was with power. Now, let me ask you a question. If it was the way that I first saw it and first thought about it and thought about it for years, that Jesus had power, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he did all these kinds of things, and people marveled because, wow, look at this guy. Then why are they going to be astonished at his doctrine? Do you see my point? If this is all about Jesus the man, Jesus the one who is exercising power, Jesus is the one who is casting out devils and all, if it's just about Jesus and his power, then why are they caring about his doctrine? Now here's where so much of the modern day church misses it today. You go on reading here in Luke chapter 4, Luke, uh, I'm sorry, uh, go on reading in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, you'll see that people came to hear him and be healed. People that understand that the power of God is not just in Jesus the man, but the Word of God will hear and be healed. But people that are thinking that Jesus is the one that had power, and certain special ones who have healing anointings or something like that special from God, they can still do some of the same works. They'll come to get healed, but they won't hear. And so their healing is very limited, if at all. They came to hear and be healed because they recognized that it was his doctrine that had power. It was his teaching that was power-filled. Jesus didn't go around saying, I'm the guy. Don't worry, don't have to believe. I'm the guy, I've got the power, I can do it. That's not the way that it worked. People received from Jesus because they had faith. 
What brings faith? Hearing the Word of God. So you have to trace back and understand that Jesus' results were a byproduct of the teaching that He did. And that's what verse 32 is trying to tell us. They were astonished at His doctrine, for His Word was with power. In other words, let me rephrase this and try to bring a little bit greater clarification. And and we'll keep reading because it says it over and over again in Luke 4. What it's saying is they were amazed to find out that His teaching was the source of power. Let's keep reading. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil crying uh, and cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee? Thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, thou holy one of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and said among themselves, Wow, what a guy this is. Folks, please understand that the Bible is making the distinction between what Jesus said and who Jesus was. The devil knew that he was the Holy One of God. He knew that he was sent from God. The devil knew that. The devil said that. Are you come to destroy us before the time? There is a time. That time's coming. (laughs) The devil's saying, is it that time already? (laughs) No, not yet. But it's soon approaching. Jesus commands the thing to shut up and come out, and it does. And they said, what a word is this? The word, the, the word that's translated word here is the same word for doctrine or teaching that we looked at in verse 32. It's the most common word for word or, or for teaching or doctrine. It says, what a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. In other words, they're saying, wow, this stuff he's telling us is true. This stuff he's telling us is true. Now, folks, what would be the only condition that would bring that response? Jesus has to be teaching them that man has authority. They've never heard that before. They've never heard that it was God's intent for them to have authority. They've had Genesis 1 all along. But they've never understood, even though Satan is in the world, that you as a human being can exercise authority over the devil. Now, are they in a position to do that? No. Because they're still dead in trespasses and sins. They're still spiritually dead. But Jesus is saying, God created man to have authority on the earth. And then he demonstrates it by casting the devil out, by healing sickness and disease, and so forth. Let's keep reading. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. I want you to see the same thing. What's he doing? He's exercising authority over sickness. He rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now, what effect does that have? When people hear that he's teaching that man has authority and then confirms it by healing the sick and casting out devils, what takes place? Notice. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on them and healed, uh, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Every person got healed as a result of the teaching on man's authority over the devil. 
Why is the church so weak and sickly? Because they haven't figured out we've got authority over the devil. They haven't figured out. The church hasn't figured out. By and large, the church hasn't figured out that we have authority over the devil. Turn with me over to, to, uh, um, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I just want to introduce this this morning, kind of get it started. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying for the church. This is the same prayer that we prayed for ourselves before the service began, or as the, the teaching began. Notice here, we're going to start reading in verse uh, 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So if he ceases not, that means he's praying this all the time, right? Well, what's he praying? What is the Holy Ghost inspiring him to pray? And what does the Holy Ghost save us a record of his prayer? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Folks, that's the most important thing you can have as a Christian. Notice he's not praying that people will get saved. He's praying this for people that are saved. The most important thing you can have as a Christian is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You'll never grow up in Christ until you grow in revelation of the knowledge of him. And it takes the spirit of wisdom to do that. That's the reason why the church is in such a babyhood stage of Christianity. Because they're focused on other things. And they say no to the part of the word that they don't like. Which brings a veil over the rest of it. You say no to anything. And you'll start going backwards. You'll walk in darkness. You find out about the baptism of the Holy Ghost and see what the Bible has to say about it and say no to it. The word of God will go, go dark for you. You can't say no to God. This is not a buffet. Pick and choose the parts you like. You can't say no to God on one thing and think that He's going to enlighten you on something else. You can't do it. Jesus told us that. He said, take heed that the light that be in you be not darkness. What's He saying? He's saying if you don't act on what you see, if you don't act on what you find out about the Word, it'll become darkness to you. I know a lot of people don't like that that way. I'm sorry. But that's what the Bible says. That's why the Bible warns you against strife. The Bible says where strife is, there's confusion and every other evil work. Why? Because if you step out of the light of love by operating in strife, then all of a sudden everything else, other forms of darkness, other aspects of darkness start creeping in on you. That's why it's so important for you to walk in love. Well, I, I want to. But they keep doing the wrong thing to me. Yeah, I know. I get that. I would walk in love if they weren't so mean to me. Yeah, I get that too. I would walk in love if they wouldn't keep talking about me like this. I really get that one. <laughs> Folks, your choice is very simple. You can either do what the Bible says or not. There is no middle ground. There's no excuse for it. No matter what a good... Look, I've developed some wonderful excuses to God and none of them have worked. Excuses don't work. Again, the Bible's very clear. You can either do it or you can not do it. That's why this is the greatest need in the body of Christ. To grow in the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Now notice that. Wisdom and revelation. 
That means just like I told you with those scriptures over in Luke chapter 4. You can know these scriptures, you can read these scriptures, you can quote these scriptures and never see the revelation of them. That's why you need to keep praying for. You need, well, uh, my pr- what I would suggest to you is this. I pray everything in faith. I, n- not every prayer is the prayer of faith, but you can pray every prayer in faith. You can pray every prayer believing God hears and answers it. But that doesn't make every prayer the prayer of faith. Because not every prayer is a prayer to receive something directly from God. Paul must think it's okay to keep praying this because he's praying it without ceasing. So the first thing that I did when I saw this, I started, I began by asking God, Father, I ask you to give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. From that point forward, and that's been over 32 years ago now, from that point forward, now I thank him multiple times every day. Thank you, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. First time I asked him, every time after that, I've been thanking him for it. And folks, the more I pray that, the more I see the truth in the word. I, heard, I got this from Brother Hagin. I heard Brother Hagin talk about it, how that while he was pastoring a certain church, he would leave his Bible open to these prayers, a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And he would every time he would go through the sanctuary on his way back and forth to places, he would pray those prayers, stop and bow down before the altar and pray those prayers for him. He said in six months' time, he realized that the stuff that he'd been preaching was, didn't even make sense. He asked his wife, my Lord, what have I been preaching? He started, the word opened up to him. Well, I heard that and I thought, okay, well, if that's how he got it, then that's how I want it. And it works for me. It works continually for me. Continually for me. It's something that every believer needs to do. There's a reason why these prayers were first inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray, for Paul to pray, and secondly, saved by the Holy Ghost for us to have a record of. If they weren't important, God wouldn't have saved them. So he said, I... Bow my knees, or that uh, ask that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Now, what is that going to produce? That the eyes of your understanding, another translation says the eyes of your spirit. He's talking about spiritual understanding. He's not just talking about mental knowledge. I can show you people that know more about the history of the Bible and know more about memorization and, and, and have memorized more verses and stuff like that than I'll ever get to, but they wouldn't know God if He walked in the room wearing a hat. We're not talking about natural knowledge. We're talking about spiritual knowledge. That the eyes of your spiritual understanding, that's what revelation brings. It brings spiritual understanding. Being enlightened or open, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. Now, folks, we've talked about this to some degree, so if you've been here, I'm not going to contradict things that I've said before. But I'm going to say it in a different way. There is no greater hope of your calling than the authority that you have in Christ. There is no greater calling that you have as a believer than to exercise, to walk in and exercise the authority that Jesus provided for you. Now, I believe this means generally, and I believe it means specifically as well. For me to understand the hope of my calling has to do with being a pastor. For you, it might be being a lawyer, or being a mechanic, or being a, uh, something else. Whatever it is that God has called you specifically to, and your station in life, God wants you to know as much about that as you can possibly know, so He can bless you and prosper you. To make you as successful and, and in, as effective as humanly possible. 
So that's what the spirit of revelation will do where your calling, your individual calling is concerned. But we all have a general calling. We all have the same things in Christ. God wants us to understand those things too. That's why I say there is nothing greater as believers, the body of Christ, than to understand the authority that we have in Christ. Because if you don't understand that, even though it belongs to you, you'll never live up to what you can live up to. You'll never reach your potential. You'll never do the works of Jesus. Which is why the church, by and large, is not. you got most of the church world arguing about who's sovereign. Is, does man have a choice or is God sovereign? Is God pulling the strings or, or is the devil pulling the strings? Most of the time, people don't know who's doing what. You think that's the way God wants it to be? You think God's sitting in heaven saying, oh, I've got them right where I want them. They don't know if I'm making them sick or the devil's making them sick. Perfect. Does anybody really think that's the way God wants it to be? Of course not. You wouldn't want that for your kids, would you? You wouldn't want your kids to, to, to wonder whether you could do good things for them or bad things to them? Of course not. Well, Jesus kept using the example of you as a natural father. He kept using the example, if you as a parent know how to do good things for your children, how much more shall your father do good things for them that are his? Folks, if parents, if natural parents were doing today what most Christians accuse God of doing, they'd be jailed for child abuse. It can't be. So he's praying that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, that we would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Part of that inheritance is authority. It's not the only thing, but that's part of it. He's talking about knowing what belongs to us. And third thing, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Now, this word power is the word ability. The exceeding greatness of his ability to usward who believe. Notice who the power is for, to the believers. Does that mean everybody that's saved? Well, in potential, yeah. But it only works in the ones that believe. Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Why don't the signs follow everybody? Because not everybody believes in his name for the signs. Not everybody believes that we can have authority to do the things that Jesus said we'd do. You get people explaining that away. Well, you know, men wrote the Bible. Yeah, men that were inspired of God. That means the words are inspired. That means the message is inspired. The message is supernatural. The writing itself and the paper that it was written on, or whatever it was written on, may be natural, but the message is supernatural. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, his ability to hustle who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? This word, uh, this phrase, his mighty power, is the same phrase over in six, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, where it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. His mighty power is the same phrase as the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the same thing he's saying here. That we would know, that our eyes would be open to, to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as, in, as believers according to the working of his mighty power. In other words, that we'd know how vast his power or the power of his might really is. The very thing that we're supposed to be strong in. But if you don't know, you can't be strong in it. Now let's keep going. Which he wrought in Christ is going to describe the power. Which he wrought in Christ. 
when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand far above. Everybody say far above. So please notice that he's saying the power that works in the believer is far above. Since it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's far above all power and might, all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. He's saying the power that works in you is greater than all of those things. Now all of those things we could summarize as saying all of the power of the devil. The power that works in you is greater than all of the power of the devil. The power of his might that you're supposed to be strong in, according to Ephesians 6.10, is greater than all the power of the devil. Not some of the power of the devil, all of the power of the devil. Now, when Jesus was raised up to to be seated at the right hand of God by the power of God that put him far above all of these things, why did he do that? It says, then God at that time, by raising him up, has put, verse 22, all things under his, Jesus' feet. Most people will stop right there and say, yeah, well, that means Jesus has the power. That means Jesus has the power. Not us. Jesus is the one that has the power. He's the one that's raised up to the right hand of God. He's the one that has the power. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So God raised Jesus to his right hand and set him far above all power and principality and might and dominion. Far above, not just a little bit, far above all of the power of the devil. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the feet. Is that what it says? It didn't give Jesus to be the feet. God didn't give Jesus to be the feet. He gave Jesus to be the head. It doesn't say the power is under his head. It said the power is under his feet. Well, Jesus isn't the feet. Jesus is the head. How many of you have feet in your head? How many of you does it work this way? Your head tells your body what to do and your body responds. Where are your feet? In the body. Doesn't the Bible say you're the body of Christ? Why would it say that? Because it's saying that everything's under your feet. It's under us. Jesus has been raised far above all power and might and dominion and, and principality. And every name that is and every name that is named. Folks, is cancer a name? Then the power of God is far above that. Every sickness has a name. And Jesus has been raised far above that. Why? To be given as the head to the body of Christ. The head to the church. To be given as the head to you. In other words, He gives the instructions, we carry it out. Where is the power? Below the feet, which is in the body. And has put all things under His feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness, please notice this, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The fullness of him is the church. The fullness of Jesus is the body of Christ. The fullness of Jesus is you. Now, you know as well as I do that Paul did not write a letter in chapter and verse, right? 
The translators de de defined and de de dissected this thing and, and set it apart for reference sake. He's not through talking. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened. In other words, at the same time God made Jesus alive, he made you alive. Now, you weren't around to receive it until later, but the work was done for you to be made alive. Folks, in, in one sense, I know some people are going to just chomp at the bit to take this out of context. But in one sense, the whole world is saved. Because the work of salvation has been done for the whole world. Does that mean the whole world is going to be in heaven? No. Only those that receive by faith through the preaching of the word that which Jesus has done for them, then they'll take advantage of them. But it still belongs to them. You know, the, I heard somebody define hell the other day. I thought this is the best definition I've ever heard in my life. Hell is the truth realized too late. You know what hell's going to be about? Hell is going to be about coming to the understanding that salvation was theirs. All they had to do is reach out by faith and take it. But whether they rejected it out of ignorance, whether they rejected it out of own purpose, whether they rejected it because they believed something else instead, they will realize it was there for me. And I passed it up. Folks, that's why the work of the church is so important. Because people are burning in hell right now that Jesus died for. You remember the rich man? When he couldn't get relief, when, he, when Abraham wouldn't let Lazarus, or Lazarus was unable, it was impossible to happen. It wasn't that God said no. It was impossible for Lazarus to come and cool his tongue with water. He said, well, then send Lazarus back to the earth. So I've got five brothers. Tell my brothers so that they not come to this place. You know what the number one desire in hell is? For their loved ones not to come to. Why? Because the truth has been realized too late. And we're worried about people rejecting us. Well, if we, if we share Jesus with them, they might be offended. I'm pretty sure everybody in hell has been pretty offended I'm pretty sure people in hell right now are terribly offended that for whatever reason they didn't make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Wouldn't you think? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. God made you alive at the same time he made Jesus alive. Wherein in time past, meaning before you were saved, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan's the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. What is that verse 2? We just read, he's called the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Keep that in mind. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, there is a course of the world, which is directed by the prince of the power of the air. It's directed by the God of this world. Folks, this idea that everybody else does it, well, of course everybody else does it. They're being influenced by the devil. That's no ex excuse for you and I to be. We know better. Yeah, but other Christians do it. Yeah, I know. 
Well, what do we need to do? We need to pray that their eyes are open to see what belongs to them so that they quit being motivated by the prince of the power of the air. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, he's going to define, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, I believe he's talking about the unsaved, but you can see his influence in the church as well. Among whom we also had our conversation, that means manner of life, in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God. <laughs> I love that. But God. Who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us or made us alive, together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and has raised us up together. It says two things took place. It says Jesus was made alive and you were made alive. It says Jesus was raised up and you were raised up. And has raised us up together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, please notice that Paul is not saying that there will come a time where you will sit together with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. It says he has made you to sit together with him now. Why is Jesus seated at the right hand of God? Why? Because the right hand is the place of power and authority. The Bible says Jesus was raised and seated together with God at his right hand and said, as we've mentioned before, when Jesus was raised up and appeared to his disciples, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. What's he saying? He's saying, I'll take care of the things in heaven. You take care of things here on the earth. You take care of things on the earth. Again, notice that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. I know I'm running out of time, so let me cover this real quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, we mentioned verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How do you do that? By putting on the armor of God. Every one of these pieces of the armor comes to knowledge of the word of God. You put on the armor of God by learning about who you are and what you have in Christ. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If you don't have the armor on, you're not going to stand against what the devil does. If you don't have your armor on, you're not going to be able to stand against the devil's deception. And folks, that's the only opportunity he has to trip up the Christian. And that is to deceive you about who you are and what belongs to you. Because if you see with your eyes wide open who you are and what belongs to you, you're not going to bite his apple. You're not going to fall for what he says, oh, here's, here's how it's going to work. You won't fall for the stuff that Eve did. You won't fall for, oh, it'll be so good for you. Things will work out so wonderfully for you. You'll know. So he says, put on the armor of God. That's the key. Put on the armor of God. The armor comes by knowledge of what we have in Christ Jesus. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12. I want to only go to verse 12 this morning. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Folks, if you ever think that there is a person that's your problem, you're wrong. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, the same people that have been raised and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, the place of authority, the same people, he says, you don't wrestle against people. It's not flesh and blood. 
Yeah, but Pastor Mike, there's this certain person. It's my boss. It's this person at work. It's his family member. It's this person that keeps stirring up trouble. They're not your problem. Well, they sure look like my problem. They sure feel like my problem. Folks, I've been there too. But notice what the Bible says. It says you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It doesn't mean you won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean you won't be hindered. It doesn't mean people won't come against you. People won't talk about you. It doesn't mean everybody will lay down and say, Oh, you're a Christian. Let's just make the way plain for you. doesn't mean that at all. Jesus said if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He furthermore said, Paul said, They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. That's why so much of the church is not. Okay, I'll say that again. (laughs) They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. That's why so much of the church is not. Because if you live like the world, the world won't care. The world only cares when you show up a difference between you and them. Okay. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Well, if we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, what do we wrestle against? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Where does he say your problem is going to come from? It's saying your problem is going to come from the work of the devil that influences the course of this world. Now notice it does not say that you're in a battle. It says you're wrestling. Why do we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and so forth. Why do we wrestle against those things? Because those are rebel powers. Please understand that the devil's power in totality is a rebel power that's seeking to resist occupation by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I know that's a mouthful, so let me explain it. Remember when World War II was declared over? Some of you may. Maybe not many anymore. But we've all read about it. We've all studied it. World War II was declared at an end. Japan surrendered. Germany surrendered. World War II was over. Did that end the fighting? Nope. You had certain pockets, particularly the Japanese, that continued to fight. Some because they never heard that the war was over, so they kept fighting. Others who heard that the war was over, but they kept fighting anyway for their own honor. So what did they have to do? The armed forces stayed over in Europe. They stayed over in, the, in the, uh, the Philippines. They stayed over in other parts of the world to occupy the land that had already been gained by the victory of the, the, the powers, the Allied powers. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, to occupy till I come. Why? Because Jesus ended the battle. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection put an end to the battle for those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. The end of the battle between life and death has already taken place. But you're going to have to occupy. Why? Because the remnant, the remains, the experience of sin in your flesh is still going to be here until Jesus comes back and gives us redeemed bodies. So you're going to have to occupy areas of your own life with the Word of God. You're going to have to use your authority and occupy those places that you gave up to the devil's invasion before you knew Jesus. You know as well as I do that when you got saved, your thinking didn't straighten out immediately. 
If you smoked before you got saved and when you got saved, there was still that desire to smoke. You're going to have to exercise your authority to stop that. You know that if you drank before you got saved, you still had the same, your flesh still had the same desire for that. If the same thing may be true where drugs were concerned. That's why when people get saved and there's not an immediate change, some people say, oh, it wasn't real. Well, sure it was real. But the reality was on the inside. You're going to have to exercise your authority to conquer your flesh. Because your flesh is being dominated by, your flesh is being influenced by the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. We just saw this, uh, some of you at least may have seen the, some of the funeral yesterday for Whitney Houston. No question after the funeral that she was born again. Well, how could a person born again be so taken away with drugs and cause, uh, take her life so young and stuff like that? Because she never used her authority to conquer the part of her flesh that had been given up to the enemy. See, so much, of church, so much of the church world is so good at looking at people that are in sin, doing the wrong things, and passing judgment. Oh, well, they must not love God. Maybe they do, and they're just trapped by their flesh. Well, what do we do in cases like that? Galatians 6.1 says, You which are spiritual, restore such a one. Why isn't there more restoration in the church? Because you can't find spiritual people. Find a lot of judgmental people. Find a lot of people that who's, who, who believe that their position in life is to tell you what's wrong. Man, if that was a gift, do you realize how many gifted people would have in the body of Christ? <laughs> Folks, there is a huge difference between what has happened on the inside of you and what may be happening on the outside of you. There's a huge difference between what's happening in your spirit and what's happening in your flesh. Same thing's true where, where sickness is concerned. People have been redeemed from the curse of sickness from the spiritual source. The sickness may be still holding on to their flesh. How are they going to conquer that? By exercising their authority to drive away those rebel powers that seek to dominate their flesh even though the battle has been won. First John 4, 4 says, you have overcome them. Now, if you want to know what the them he's talking about are, are the evil spirits that are operating in the world that he speaks of in verses 1, 2, and 3. He said, but you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. All the evil forces of the enemy, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Let me close with one final scripture, and that's over in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Now, the reason I'm going here, I would stop normally, but we're going to have communion, so I need to, I need to throw this one in. Folks, I can't tell you how excited I am to teach this series. And in case you don't know, this is me excited. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, Jesus... Spends the first part of the chapter uh, telling the disciples what to do. Go into the, the cities and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Do all this kinds of stuff. They come back and uh, report to him in verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. That's another way of saying, Lord Jesus, we found out that we have authority over devils. Now, if you look at the first part of the chapter, first part of chapter 10, you'll find out he didn't say one word about casting out devils. Didn't say one word about exercising authority over devils. But they found out that the power that he gave them to heal the sick, the power that he gave them to preach the gospel, is the same power, is the same authority that causes the devil to flee. 
Here's where the church has missed it. They thought that there's some special different thing. It's not. It's all the same saving power of God. Because the, everything is wrapped up in the package called the name of Jesus. Healing power is not different from casting out devil power. Raising the dead power is not different from forgiveness of sins power. It's all the same thing because Jesus won the battle. So the, the 70 come back and say, Jesus, even the devils are subject to us through your name. Your name's the key. And Jesus said unto them, I have beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He didn't say he did it when you exercise authority. He's saying this is when God cast him out of heaven. In other words, Satan was a defeated foe even when he tricked Adam into giving him authority here on the earth. Folks, please understand something. The devil is a defeated foe. You may look at the devil as coming against you as some kind of bad, bad, bad guy. The fact is he's whipped. That's why the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. It's no contest between you and the devil. When you know what you need to know. It's no contest between sickness and health. When you know what you need to know. It's no contest between riches and poverty. When you know what you need to know. Now I'm pointing to my head, but it's really knowing on the, on the inside. It's really knowing in your heart and living it out. There's no contest, folks. No contest whatsoever. The devil keeps threatening you, saying, Oh, I'm going to do this to you. What's he waiting for? He keeps saying, I'm going to do something to you. Why hasn't he done it already? If he is so strong, if he's so powerful, if his ability is so great, why hasn't he done it already? He knows he can't. He hopes you never find out. So Jesus is telling us Satan is defeated. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. This is the word authority. Two times the word power is used in verse 19. The first one is the word authority. I give unto you delegated power. Not talking about ability. I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, is he talking about real snakes and scorpions? No. He's using that as an example of all of the power of the enemy. He's telling you, here's God's attitude toward the devil. He's like a scorpion. He's like a snake. Folks, what do we do with scorpions and snakes? kill them we don't run from them we kill them now we may back up and get a stick but we kill them you don't live in fear of scorpions and snakes you find them out and you kill them now if you knew that your house had scorpions and snakes in there what would you do some of most christians would move Well, what would you do? Think this through. I mean, literally, if you had scorpions and snakes in your house, what would you do? Get somebody else to handle this problem for us. <laughs> Call the exterminator. Okay, then somebody, assume that's what you do. What would they do? They would arm themselves with what they needed to have and search them out and get rid of them. That's the point. You have authority. To get rid of serpents and scorpions and all of the power of the enemy, no matter what he's trying to do in your life or what means he's trying to do it. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. <laughs> Man, we're not even getting started on this. I'm getting fired up about it. It's only going to get gooder and gooder from here. That's what he's saying. 
Behold, I give unto you authority. I've equipped you with everything you need to search out every scorpion and every snake to kill it. In your life. In your existence. He's saying the devil is not a problem for you. Any part of the church world that thinks the devil is their problem has missed it entirely. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Why are people afraid of serpents and scorpions? Why are people afraid of serpents and scorpions? They might bite me. You know who serpents and scorpions bite? People that aren't paying attention. People that aren't alert. But people who know that they're there and have therefore equipped themselves with the necessary tools to rid their, their house or their life of them, they're not worried about getting bit because they know what they have is sufficient. If I've got a shotgun in my hand, do I care if the snake acts like he wants to bite me? We used to do that as kids. Teenagers. I say kids. Teenagers. My daddy uh, leased out a farm. 600 and something acres of farm. He had this big idea that he was going to plant wheat and my brother and I were going to bring it in. That didn't work real well. But he signed a five-year lease on it. It had, it had hunting grounds. It had, it had a stream on it. I mean, it, it was a great place. Well, it, this place is full of snakes. Full of snakes. My daddy was a big gun collector and that kind of stuff. We would take shotguns, and we would go out on the creek bank and walk the creek bank, and we'd, there'd be three of us, and one of them would poke holes in there trying to get these cottonmouths to come out. Now, cottonmouth is a water moccasin. Real, real, real poisonous snake. We got to where we would let those things jump at us and shoot them in midair. I mean, if you shot it when it was on the ground, you're just a weenie. I mean, anybody can do that. We'd get these things and somebody would aggravate it with the stick and we'd step back. I mean, it was shallow creek bank, so we'd step back, let the thing jump, leap out, and blow that thing away in midair. We thought we were Rambo. We thought we were the toughest things around. Folks, that's what I think about when I see this. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Quit being afraid of the devil. Quit being afraid of sickness. Quit being afraid of what the devil's threatening you to do. Now, folks, I, I'm enjoying this. All this is good, but this is not the point. This is what I'm, I'm about to get to what I wanted to tell you. Verse 20, notwithstanding, Jesus said, and besides all this, these things are true, but in this rejoice not. He's saying don't get happy because the devil is subject to you. That the spirits are so, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying recognize your authority, but don't swagger. Recognize your authority, but don't emphasize, we have authority over the devil. It's like, well, of course we have authority over the devil. We've been raised far above all the devil's power. We have authority over everything the devil does. 
But see, so many times people will talk about authority and people will talk about the devil and you come away thinking, devil? you got too much of the church world that's thinking devil. Folks, the devil's not the problem. He says, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Why? Because that's the source of your authority. You have authority over all the power of the devil. You have authority. You don't get authority. You have authority over all the power of the devil. Well, Pastor Mike, I'm not convinced. Okay, stick with us. We'll show you more. But you have been given, not you will be given, you have been given authority over the devil, over all of his power, to tread on serpents and scorpions. I love that. That just occurred to me, well, it hadn't been a long time ago. But that's why God, that's why Jesus used this example of serpents and scorpions. That's how God looks at the devil. A serpent and a scorpion. No problem. We want to receive communion today. Why? Because our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Gentlemen, if you'll get everything ready, we'll wait upon the people. Folks, I want you to understand something. And that is very simply this. You don't have to do one thing to have authority of the devil. That's already been given to you because your names are written down in heaven. The only thing that is for us to do is to exercise that authority of the devil. Now, there may be areas of your life that you gave up to the devil. There may have been things that happened that you never intended for the consequence to be like it is. Very few of us really go in knowing what the consequences are going to be. But we give away pieces of ourselves through lack of knowledge, ignorance, whatever it is. We give away pieces of ourselves and as a result the devil still has footholds in our lives. You can break those footholds by just taking communion this morning and recognizing, wait a minute, I've had enough of this. This is the day where I begin to occupy this area of my life. Gentlemen, will you come forward, please?